today on Against the Grain. While the Trump administration's policy of separating children from their parents at the U.S.-Mexico border drew intense condemnation, the practice has been going on in this country for centuries. Historian Laura Briggs argues that it's been part of a strategy of counterinsurgency, as during the anti-communist wars in Latin America, in which rebellious populations are terrorized by having their children taken. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. The United States has a very long history of taking children from their families. From slavery, to the forced removal of native children sent to Indian boarding schools, to the separation of the children of civil rights activists under the guise of removing them from unsuitable homes. And, as Laura Briggs demonstrates in Taking Children, a History of American Terror, the United States aided and abetted murderous regimes in Central and South America which took children from their radical parents and ultimately destabilized the region, fueling migration today. Briggs teaches women, gender, and sexuality studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Laura, when the Trump administration separated the children of detained immigrants from their families in 2018, 2019, there was enormous outrage and often the declaration that this was un-American. Tell us how you reacted to that moment. It was a deeply ironic moment for me because I had written an earlier book called Somebody's Children um, in which I actually chronicled the separation of children from by the U.S. Um, over and over again. And the separation of children for political ends has a long history in the United States from um, the separation of indigenous kids first in the context of boarding schools as a way to end the Indian Wars and take children essentially as hostages to um, the, the scoop of indigenous children in the 60s and 70s into foster care and adoptions, the taking of black kids in the U.S., um, especially in the context of the civil rights movement when black rebellion was met with um, state power in taking kids and putting them in foster care. Um, so it was shocking and ironic to hear this, especially as George W. Bush, after 9-11, um, immediately began separating children from their kin and caregivers in family detention centers and was actually called out by, on it by Amnesty International. Tell us more about then the policies of recent U.S. administrations regarding separating immigrant children from their families. We are going to talk a whole lot more about some of the much broader, deeper questions that you've just touched on, these histories of pulling children away from their families that date back for centuries. But since there was a fair amount of debate around how unusual this policy was in the recent past, can you tell us, going back to the Reagan era, how recent U.S. administrations, or relatively recent U.S. administrations, regarded separating immigrant children from their families? Latin American children, children from Central America, became separable from their parents in the context of the Reagan administration's wars in Central America. And recently we've watched um, refugees leaving Afghanistan in the context of the U.S. wars there. But of course there was also an influx of refugees from Central America um, in the 1980s as the United States pursued wars um, to stamp out communism in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua. And 
part of the program to um, stamp out communism, if I can put that in quotes, um, it included taking the children of people who were presumed to be or accused of being um, even sympathetic to, um, to socialism in Central America. And the military would come in and often exterminate an entire village in the context of Guatemala or El Salvador. And, um, or other times, in much more targeted efforts, simply come in and take children and put them in helicopters and fly them to various places, to cities, Red Cross shelters, to uh, military barracks. Sometimes they made their way subsequently into adoptions within the Central American com countries. Other times they made their way to adoptions in Europe or the United States. And we don't have the evidence proving that, that, what, that the U.S. was involved directly in that kind of child kidnapping. We do know it was officially policy by those governments and that um, the Reagan administration and the U.S. military were very involved in directing military policy. And we, um, and so of course many people strongly suspect that, um, that there was U.S. military involvement. And so subsequently, as, um, as refugees who were not picked up by the military made their way through Mexico and across the U.S.-Mexico border, once again, children who crossed unaccompanied were held in detention if they were, um, if they were found by Border Patrol. And you could say that the Reagan administration had a policy of separating children from their families in the sense that they made it very difficult for families to come and, and pick up those kids who were held in detention. So, for example, if, um, if a mother was undocumented and tried to pick up her kid, she would be asked to show papers and she would be immediately deported. Now, a child who, who crossed presumably had a claim to an asylum hearing and so couldn't be deported immediately because under international law, anybody who is um, in fear of their lives can request asylum in a third country like the United States. And so what the policy did, in effect, was to force families either to leave their child in detention or face deportation, leaving their child in the United States. And so while it was less visible, less explicit, a policy of deportation, once the Reagan administration made it so that only um, grandparents, aunts, uncles, and parents could pick up their kids from detention, so not a cousin, not a caregiver, not a family friend, um, a policy that the U.S. Supreme Court upheld, um, they, in effect, had started separating children from their parents on U.S. soil as far back as the early 1980s. And then what about subsequent administrations? So the um, George W. Bush administration, um, as I mentioned, after 9-11 was treating immigrants in a way familiar to Japanese Americans, um, essentially as Muslim immigrants in particular essentially all as potential terrorists after 9-11-2001. And so many, many people were rounded up. And for families in detention, including Latin Americans and um, Muslims, the children were separated explicitly to terrorize people. 
um, and perhaps to minimize their claims to um, various kinds of visas that might enable them to stay. And um, the George W. Bush policy was to what they call, called harden or securitize immigration detention. The um, Obama administration came into office swearing that it was going to um, end these kinds of policies that, of terrorizing immigrants. But by um, the early years of, by the middle years of his first term, um, Obama was, um, was removing kids who crossed alone, unaccompanied minors, um, without a hearing on whether they had claims to asylum status. We know that some of those children were killed as soon as they returned to home countries in Central America. I mean, it's important to say that Central America in many ways never recovered from the disruption of the anti-communist wars of the 1980s and 90s. And so in subsequent years, under um, the kinds of narco-capitalism that those new regimes gave rise to, and terror, children continued to ha to flee just as they had fled um, forced conscription and other forms of terror during the war. And um, so the Obama administration ultimately put um, families in detention again who were just awaiting hearings. And while many of us would question the distinction between regular immigrants and those seeking asylum, because in many ways they're very similar groups of people, nevertheless, asylum seekers have a legal right to be in the United States. They are awaiting an asylum hearing. They are not, um, as the Trump administration kept saying, they're not illegal in any sense, not that any human being is illegal. But so asylum seekers being held in detention is a kind of shocking thing, right? They're locked up. And so the Obama administration initially put um, ankle bracelets engaged in community-based detention, you could say, but ultimately um, locked people up. So even though we associate the Obama administration with DACA and other kinds of loosening of regimes of the criminalization of immigrants, those who are not DACA eligible were treated quite harshly. And where do things stand now with the Biden administration? The Biden administration is um, doing something that the Trump administration didn't which is to allow unaccompanied minors to enter the United States. So once we had a COVID crisis in 2020, the Trump administration essentially was able to use the COVID crisis and what people refer to as Title 42, Title 42 of the health code, to um, build the wall in effect that he was never able to build in actuality and began simply deporting absolutely everybody. The Biden administration has continued to use Title 42 expulsions um, for most migrants. Um, ironically, it tests many people for COVID-19 before it deports them. So even as it's deporting them ostensibly to keep the, to, for reasons of public health, it has to know that they are COVID-free before it deports them for public health reasons. Um, likewise, children are being tested for COVID-19 when they cross. They're um, currently being allowed to cross as unaccompanied minors. But because um, many, many families, because of the terror that they face in Central America, the narco-capitalism, the corrupt government corruption, 
Um, Guatemala is in the middle of a general strike right now. Um, and of course, Haiti is um, suffering from both political crisis and an earthquake. So people being deported to, or potentially um, being deported to Central America or the Caribbean may well stay in refugee camps in Mexico and allow their children to cross because as unaccompanied minors are being allowed to stay. So it's not exactly a policy of separating children at the border, but it sure, but for many kids and many households, this has the same effect. Historian Laura Briggs is my guest. We're talking about the history in the United States of separating children from their families. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. You focus in your book partially on the history, the very long history, of black families being pulled apart, starting with slavery. And I wonder if you can talk about that history. Perhaps it's obvious to most people in terms of the history of slavery itself, but then the way that that history continued through the 20th century after slavery, after Reconstruction in different forms. Well, one of the things that I came to understand much more clearly as I was writing the book is that the reason we know the story that slave owners separated um, children from their mothers is the abolition movement. And that seems important to say because one of the things that I think the movement to end child separation at the border did, whether they were aware of it or not, is very much borrow from the history of abolitionists. And I found that very moving. Um, so, so after enslavement, after Reconstruction, when a lot of families were also separated so that white um, former enslavers were able to re essentially requisition the labor of black young men, most for the most part, mostly men, but also some girls as apprentices, again, tearing families apart. Um, but I think it's also important to learn the history of the child welfare system and to understand that what the period that some people call the second reconstruction, the second effort to create civil and political rights for African Americans in this country, the civil rights movement, that from the late 1950s through the 1960s, we began to see um, more and more young black children separated from their mothers through a policy of ending welfare. So if we think of, if our images for, of the civil rights movement are people in their Sunday best going out and facing the police or the fire hoses, um, the image that white supremacists, particularly but not exclusively in the South, wanted to counter that with was the idea that um, that actually African-Americans were wretched and impoverished. And I think more than we mostly remember, the civil rights movement was a children's crusade, right? The people who were sent to desegregate public accommodations were little kids sent to desegregate schools. And the... Um, and there were marches exclusively of children. And so white supremacists also targeted children um, as the little warriors of the civil rights movement. And so what they did was they threatened to cut impoverished mothers off of welfare as a response to the uprisings and rebellions of civil rights. And once they cut them off, then mothers, single mothers, no longer had the resources to adequately house or feed their children. 
And so what we saw after that was social workers moving in to those families and taking kids and putting them in foster care. Um, we also saw groups like the National Urban League trying to um, get together money and rent parties and food for these same families. And so churches all over the South, in particular in New Orleans, um, were cooking for and feeding impoverished families. And for a moment, you saw even, uh, even upstanding white middle-class people standing up for single moms on welfare in the South and sending food and resources south. But at the end of the day, what happened was that the National Urban League, the ACLU, groups like that, sued the Social Security Administration. Welfare, of course, is part of Social, Social Security. And demand that they give aid to dependent children either to mothers who were trying to keep body and soul together for these kids, or that if they're not going to give them the, um, the resources they need because they're keeping an unsuitable home in the language of the South in those, in those days, um, then they had, to, they had to move the kids and give them aid somewhere else. And they thought that was going to be a deterrent, but unfortunately what it did was build the contemporary foster system. So foster care is now a program largely funded by the federal government through a program called the ADC Foster Care. And so it poured money into southern states' coffers to take black children and put them in foster care. And so at that moment, foster care went from being a program that had ignored black children to one that disproportionately targeted them um, and punished communities in rebellion throughout that era. And so we still have a system, even today, that disproportionately targets African-American and Latinx communities to take their kids. And that notion of child neglect as an excuse to take children from their families is one that seems to run throughout a number of the different populations that you discuss in your book who have been targeted in effect by the state. I should say that I'm speaking with Laura Briggs. She teaches women, gender, and sexuality studies at UMass Amherst. We're talking about her book, Taking Children, A History of American Terror, which is published by UC Press. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So uh, I'd like to switch to talk about Native families, for which the similar question of suitable homes plays a role in the removal of children from Native families. Take us back to the end of the Indian Wars and the beginning of the practice of taking children to Indian boarding schools, which you note in the book that Hitler thought highly of this practice. So what we see in the, in the writing from the Third Reich is that Hitler regarded Indian boarding schools as a form of race laws. And he thought that Indian law in particular provided a model that he could use for Jewish people in Germany and ultimately beyond. Um, so it's a really striking legal history, the use of the plenary power doctrine, doctrine the idea that, um, that the federal government can, under certain circumstances, do things that you think it can't, exceptional things. Um, the plenary power doctrine was both the doctrine that the Trump administration invoked to take the, to take the kids of asylum seekers at the border, and it was the doctrine that was used to take Native kids and put them in boarding schools. 
so we've started thinking a little bit more about native boarding schools in the context of Canada, um, where recently um, graves have been found on the grounds of former Indian schools. Um, but the graves actually weren't even hidden on at all on the U.S. side of the border. Um, there are cemeteries on the grounds of all Indian schools. And the, um, so what happened was at the end of the Indian Wars, or as the Indian Wars were, um, were being fought to the end, the U.S. military, the cavalry began um, experimenting with setting up what were at first POW camps and subsequently um, boarding schools for Native kids, separating them from their parents, families, communities in order to detribalize them and to force them to learn English, to um, essentially turn them into Anglo citizens and or servants, many of them um, would in the summer go and do farm work on people's houses or be or do domestic labor inside um, inside homes. And that can the so native boarding schools were disrupted in the late 20s and 30s, especially as the extent of hunger, dis disease, and actual illiteracy was um, documented in the Miriam Report. And the Roosevelt administration began demanding um, day schools for, for Native kids. Some native boarding schools actually continued beyond that, um, significantly under native control with native teachers. And by the 1950s, what the U.S. government was trying to do to detribalize people was to enact a policy that they called termination. Um, and termination was to end tribal status for Native nations because treaties were made with tribal nations. If the tribal nation no longer existed, there was no treaty, right? There were just individuals. Um, and so while we learn about um, the history of the civil rights movement in the 1950s in the U.S. South, we're less likely to learn about the struggles over termination in the 1950s, mostly in the U.S. West. And there, but at the state level, there were fierce battles over termination, the taking of land, um, seizing water rights. In the Dakotas, it was the building of dams and flooding indigenous lands. And where tribal nations fought back against um, detribalization, then we saw again the growth of a child welfare system that disproportionately targeted Native kids. And the fight over aid to dependent children, what we subsequently came to call welfare, was, had different dynamics in the West. The states were unwilling, many of them, to pay anybody living on tribal land a um, ADC because they said, you know, they didn't even speak English and furthermore they had no relationship with the state. Um, and to some extent, the question of what a state's relationship to a tribal nation is is actually peculiar because tribal nations made treaties with federal governments, with the federal government of the United States. And so the state actually is a lesser entity than a tribal nation. But with termination, states came to believe that they could 
go on to reservations and and take children. So if somebody's on ADC and you take their kids, you don't have to pay them ADC anymore. You don't have to pay welfare anymore. And many states simply said that the conditions of impoverishment on reservations were universally um, unsafe for children. People didn't have running water, they didn't have electricity in some cases. The other thing that um, state social workers particularly objected to, and now I'm thinking particularly of the Dakotas, is tribal forms of kinship. So if you habitually left a child with their grandmother, um, which was a perfectly um, normal, typical tribal practice, then um, that was evidence that you as a mom weren't taking adequate care of your child and grandmothers were considered to be too old to provide adequate care for a child. And so these were the kinds of reasons that were given by state social workers for um, the large-scale removal of Native kids from tribal nations and putting them in foster care and ultimately adoptions with, um, with white families. And the scale of this is pretty stunning. You write that one out of three Native children were taken from their families. Yes, and the Association of American Indian Affairs documented that statistic. And so it went from being something that families faced alone and with a certain amount of shame to the recognition that this was a shockingly widespread practice that lots of families or households in on tribal lands were dealing with. And this helped tribal nations begin to organize against it. And so you saw um, tribal chairmen, tribal councils beginning to pass resolutions, newspapers like Akwesasne Notes and um, Indian Country Today beginning to write against it. And the organization for um, passage of what ultimately became the Indian Child Welfare Act and it took, um, it took a decade of organizing, but ultimately after three sets of congressional hearings, um, some of which you can actually watch on YouTube of children or um, families talking about how they were separated. You, um, the Indian Child Welfare Act was passed and at least until the 1980s, from the um, late 60s until the 1980s, we saw dramatic declines in the number of Native kids who were being taken by child welfare agencies. And one thing that you note is that if we forget the history of the United States taking children from their families, we also can forget the history of resistance to that practice and that, in fact, the resistance to such separation has been great, whether you're looking at, you know, the resistance of African Americans or Native Americans. Are there connections between the ways people have different groups in different places have resisted? That is, do you see any evidence of people learning from the struggles of, say, people in the South and the Civil Rights Movement, crossing over to Native people also struggling against the removal of children under the same pretense of protecting child welfare? Well, I think that we have to learn in each generation about this history of resistance. I think it keeps getting disappeared. And um, in our deeply conservative country, we start to imagine that we know what it's all about. So, for example, in the 1960s, the National Association of Black Social Workers um, issued its famous statement on where black children belong. 
where do black children belong? They belong in black families. And throughout the 1990s, we saw um, law, all sorts of law professors writing to say, you know, this is a theory of race and this is a theory of kinship that really ignores the ways that white families can love black children. And of course, it was never about whether white families can love black children um, or black children can be psychologically healthy. It was a claim about the scooping of black children by state welfare agencies um, and that that shouldn't be happening. But I feel like we're, um, we're reinventing that kind of resistance to, again now that one of the things that's been most hopeful for me in recent years is the growth of a real abolitionist movement that is asking sharp questions about what they call the family regulation system rather than the child welfare system. Whether the family regulation system in disproportionately taking black, native, and Latinx children is actually a child welfare system or if it's simply an arm of police and law enforcement that is that is taking not just disproportionately taking black latinx and native kids but whether it's taking them for no good reason at all except the poverty that families mother single mothers in particular are facing but in the um reaching across and uncovering the different kinds of histories. They've been siloed histories, right? Latin Americans have fought to discover in Argentina and El Salvador what happened to disappeared children in the context of the, of the anti-communist civil wars and the role of U.S. empire in these anti-communist civil wars. Native communities remember Indian Child Welfare Act. They remember one in three kids being separated. But the question of what was the role of states and fights over welfare in black communities disappears. And so I think the role of historians and other people, other people doing the memory work of the history of these movements is to make sure that these movements all are well aware of each other and working together. One place that we did see them working together was in the context of turning a um, military base in Oklahoma into a, into a place that could house the children of asylum seekers as the Trump administration separated them from their families. And we saw Black Lives Matter activists working with um, Japanese American um, groups that had fought to recover the memories of ja the Japanese internment, um, working together with native activists, because in fact, the place was, had been all of those things. It had held Indian prisoners of war from the Indian wars. It had held Japanese American internees during World War II. It had um, been a military base, a US military base. And so sometimes just paying attention to the geography can help us remember the ways that these struggles are interlocked. I'm speaking with historian Laura Briggs. We're discussing her book, Taking Children, A History of American Terror. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, I wanted to ask you about something that you said earlier, which is the practice of taking children from their parents is in effect a practice of terrorizing people and while that practice of terrorizing people might be applied to a whole swath of people for example coming to the united states for different reasons 
you argue that it has very much also been used as a counterinsurgency tactic that is particularly applied to activists in the South struggling for civil rights, people who are fighting for red power in Native communities. And so I wanted to ask you about that practice, particularly as it played out in the anti-communist repression in Latin America, which, as you mentioned earlier, was very much tied to U.S. policy. Can you tell us about the history of anti-communist repression and the separation of children in that context, in the Latin American context? Well, I think the key word there is counterinsurgency. The belief was that you could end resistance by not allowing people to raise another generation. And the work of passing on values and political beliefs to, um, to children was precisely what people wanted to, um, what anti-communists wanted to interrupt. And in the context of Guatemala, which always had a very small um, actual socialist movement, it moved from being an attack on, um, on communities in the cities to simply an attack on indigenous people. And whole indigenous language groups like the Ishiles were identified as um, as themselves somehow insurgents. And so the idea was that if you could disrupt their language, disrupt the transmission of um, ways of dressing, ways of weaving, um, uh, which are the blouses that women wear that are distinct to communities, if you could just eliminate that in a generation by, um, by disappearing children and having them raised in cities by Spanish speakers or by um, people associated with the anti-communist insurgency themselves, um, you could, in a generation, eliminate the transmission of these kinds of socialist, more collectivist values. And while, the, while all these states vastly overestimated the number of insurgents there ever were. Um, they also failed utterly to, um, to in fact interrupt the transmission of values. Every empire imagines that it'll live for a thousand years. Um, but these anti-communist governments ultimately um, fell or were challenged or lost their um, their death grip on societies, and so the um, so that's so we continue to have Ishil-speaking communities in Guatemala. We continue to have um, left movements in El Salvador and Nicaragua. Tell us about what took place in El Salvador, where the anti-communist repression was very closely connected to the U.S. state? What we know is that the military in El Salvador um, separated children from communities. Um, this has gotten better and better documented over time, and um, in large part because of the political resistance there. In El Salvador, Pro Buscada, which emerged out of the radical wing of the Catholic Church, has over um, decades now documented the disappearance of children in the 1980s by the U.S.-supported Salvadoran military, the anti-communists, and has worked with families who lost those children to specifically document in as extensive a way as possible what happened, what the names of the units were, 
And some of these children have subsequently been found in the US and Europe or in El Salvador itself and have um, there's been there's been documentation that regiments um, that were closely associated with US training participated in the taking of children so there's good reason to think that the US had a role in promoting this vision of eliminating the transference of the memory of insurgency to children. Um, and it's Probuscada is one um, cases in the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. And the um, government of El Salvador has had to open its books to try to document what's happened to children. The saddest part is that these families that are working, that have worked closely together across decades, some have found their children and some haven't. Um, but, and they've had to figure out how to support each other through those difficult kinds of um, divisions in their organization. The anti-communist wars in Central America ultimately severely destabilized those countries. Uh, and at the same time, U.S. support and U.S. policy in Central America, particularly supporting those involved in narcotics, led to the inflow of crack cocaine into the United States. I wonder if you could talk about those two threads, kind of the aftermath of these anti-communist wars in which children were taken from their left-wing parents and how in their aftermath it led to more children being separated from their parents, whether on the border or in the context of the war on drugs in the United States. Right. One of the things that we have come to understand is that the war on drugs in the United States was very much a ultimate originally a Nixon administration effort to target um, African-Americans and hippies um, as enemies of the state, as enemies of the Nixon administration. But what we've been less clear is about the role of the international transport of narcotics um, in supporting militaries. Um, and one of the things that we can always document and then sort of drop, uh, don't know what to do with, is the, um, the role of drugs in financing militarism, financing militaries in Vietnam, um, in Honduras, the support for the Contras, um, which was the the loose group of mercenaries and um, military members that opposed the government of Nicaragua. Um, the Reagan administration was compelled to cut off aid because Congress um, required a documentation of decent human rights record uh, records. And of course, El Salvador, the Salvadoran government at that time was leaving bodies in the streets with marks of torture as a way of terrorizing leftist insurgents. Or, um, and in Nicaragua, the um, Contras were recruiting children and engaged in massacres, and they were not a pleasant group of folks. And so the Reagan administration couldn't get funding for them through Congress. And we, we remember the Ali North hearings and the Iran-Contra affair. Um, one of the ways that money was funneled to the Contras was by essentially the, looking the other way as they ran drugs into Southern California. And as narco-traffickers became 
a more and more consolidated group as a result of the role of the Contras. Um, what we saw was that drugs that had formerly come from Colombia and been run through the Caribbean then were subsequently run through Central America and um, Mexico. And the um, so what we got was the crack crisis. Um, they began to sell a cheaper form of their cocaine product and U.S. law enforcement had always sort of looked the other way with cocaine because it was largely a drug of the very rich. But when it became a drug of the poor, of course, um, cracking down on um, those who used a cheaper form of cocaine became a primary goal of law enforcement. And what we saw with the war on drugs was a resurgence, a doubling of the size of the foster care system as the family regulation system worked with law enforcement to punish people who were using and abusing drugs. That's not to say that everyone who was using cocaine was a good parent. Um, there may have been many reasons to be concerned about what was going on in those households as people became very ill from um, using illicit drugs. But the other thing to say about that is drug treatment was simply not available. And so rather than treat it as a public health crisis, which it most certainly was, and one aided and abetted by U.S. foreign policy, um, we treated it as a law enforcement crisis and arrested mothers and separated their children and put them in foster care. Laura Briggs, I'm afraid we're totally out of time. Thank you so much for joining me in this hour. Thanks so much for having me. Laura Briggs is a historian. She teaches women, gender, and sexuality studies at UMass Amherst. She's the author of Taking Children, A History of American Terror, published by UC Press at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to that book. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune in again next time. Mm -hmm.